stop the presses. Pull out the front page. Stand by for a replay. Yeah, it's those two guys from Milwaukee. Oh, those two guys from Milwaukee. Here we go again. It's those two guys from Milwaukee. Welcome to Unknown Orbits, the podcast in which two writers discuss everything science fiction from Gernsbach to Roddenberry. Welcome to Unknown Orbits. I'm Steve Reitze. And I'm Patrick Baird. Today's topic will be The Runaway Robot by Lester Del Rey and Scholastic Books. So first of all, Lester Del Rey, he started publishing stories in pulp magazines around the late 1930s. He was in all the major magazines. His first story was, I believe it was in the April 1938 issue of Astounding Science Fiction, which I think was the first publication for a lot of the classic writers. Credit to John W. Campbell. That story was called The Faithful. Later, he would go on to write Helen O'Loy, only, what, less than six months or about nine months later, uh, which... Pat, you may be more familiar with than, than I am because it was collected in the Science Fiction Hall of Fame. You know, I've read most of that book at one point, but uh, to be honest with you, that was a, back in the 80s probably. So I don't, I'm sure I don't remember it. I know I read the story, but I don't remember much. It, I know I read the story, but honestly, I don't remember anything about it. Lester Del Rey did a lot of uh, writing for the children's market. His first three novels were printed in a juvenile series by Winston Publishing, which by itself is collectible today. Lester Del Rey was well known for children's literature, along with Robert Heinlein and Andre Norton. One of my absolute favorite books was The Runaway Robot by Lester Del Rey. And probably a close second was The uh, Tunnel Through Time, also by Lester Del Rey. Now, what was a little bit disappointing is Runaway Robot is ghostwritten. Lester Del Rey wrote an outline, and the actual book was written by Paul W. Fairman. He does get credit in the more modern editions of this book. He was a founding editor of If magazine, and then later he became editor of uh, the magazine's Amazing Stories and Fantastic. He was kind of well-known at the time, and actually two of his short stories became movies, uh, Deadly City and The Cosmic Frame. And I believe The Cosmic Frame was turned into the delightful 1950s science fiction movie Invasion of the Saucermen, which featured classic bug-eyed monster, gigantic head aliens. And the thing I remember about that movie that I remember fondly is that the, the aliens were vanquished at the end of the movie by all the teenagers in the movie circling the aliens with their hot rods and turning on their headlights. And their yeah. headlights made all the aliens explode. Then they played rock and roll music and danced off into the end credits. I remember the teenager, the main teenager with a receding hairline going to the police <laughs> and being dismissed. <laughs> Uh, I love that movie. That, that, is a, that is a classic slice of 1950s cheese. There is something about an early human victim there, someone famous. Batman guy, Frank Gorshin was in it. Oh, he, yeah. He, I, I, I might be getting mixed up with another movie, 
but I think he played like some sort of hustling record sales record executive or something. Yes. Yes. There was like one of the main characters when it was in a rock and roll band and Frank Gorshin was the the guy who was going to discover him and make him famous, but then he got killed by the aliens or something. Yeah. So that was a fun movie. Oh yeah, absolutely. Worth, worth catching up to if, if you can. Now the plot of the runaway robot is as most children's stories are fairly simple. It's, it's what I like to call a travelogue plot. They get into a situation, they go through all the permutations of that situation and then it's solved. And in this case, the kid, Paul, he and his family have been living on Jupiter's moon Ganymede for seven years, and then his father gets reassigned to Earth. However, they can't afford to ship the robot with them, so they have to leave the robot behind. And the kid doesn't like this. So just before the ship takes off, the kid escapes from the rocket ship. Rocket ship takes off, and then he and the robot have adventures. I think one unique aspect to this, given that it's a children's book, is that it's told from the perspective of the robot, which is an interesting choice. It allows that kind of alien voice or alien perspective on human events. You, you know what I mean? I like that aspect of the book, but I felt like they didn't really pull it off. There was a lot of, you know, the robot sort of in third person saying, explaining how he almost was having emotions where he was having what he interpreted as certain feelings. He's like, I don't know what hope is, but I think it's like this, this thing that I'm feeling right now, I think it might be hope or, you know, whatever the the emotion was. And it, it was, it was a pretty interesting choice and I liked that choice, but it, I don't think they, they really pulled it off. Well, to be honest with you, it felt a little odd it helped you to identify with the robot a little bit, but it didn't really give him a personality. I do think it helped you to connect with him. And as a kid, I remember some of my favorite parts of that were the idea of being inside the robot's head as he overcomes certain problems, like switching his battery out or his uh, discovery of what it's like to have color vision because one of the people that meet on on the way has an old color vision tube and he can trade it with with the robot which by the way is it's amazing to me that as late as the mid 1960s they were still science fiction writers were still obsessed with tubes <laughs> as a major source of technology I had to learn term tube technology when I was in the navy and it was theor- theoretically still in use but I just find that anachronistic and interesting. This is a completely different topic, but uh, when I was working at an engineering library, I went through a brief phase where I was reading up on old vacuum tube technology. And when you really think about it, there's something a whole lot sexier about it because you have electron beams going through a vacuum being attacked and altered by magnetic fields. And it's a lot more fun. They glow different colors, and it believe me, it, it, seeing vacuum tubes in operation is kind of cool. As an adult looking at this book, I, I did notice something that it has some similarities to Huckleberry Finn. Perhaps a big giveaway for that is the fact that Chapter 2 is called Down the River. I'm sure that's not a, a coincidence, because Down the River 
was, if, if you remember Huckleberry Finn, uh, Jim was going to be sold down the river to a slave plantation, I believe. And that's why he wound up running away, because he didn't want to go to the slave plantation, and he would have been separated from his wife. And, and that's what happens in the story, is that the robot, when, when the family is getting ready to leave to go to Earth, he's sold to a farmer to be a farm robot. So it's, it's got to be a direct comment on or take, take off from Huckleberry Finn, the idea of being sold off to an undesirable owner. It wouldn't be the first time someone took guidance from an, another book, especially for children's books. Didn't you read Huckleberry Finn in school? I know I did. Oh, I did. Yes. But I mean, I was... I know I that, was... that doesn't happen anymore today, but, but back in the day... That was one of the standard books that just about everybody had to read in, high, in school. Yeah. Well, I, I won't detail all the adventures they go through. It's a pretty, like I said, it's a travelogue story where they're working through different problems. By the end of the story, they find out that the solution has already presented itself, uh, which is kind of common in kids' books if you think about it, because you don't want to take the time to have to wait for the solution to happen in the text. You want the kid to be reunited with his parents, perhaps reluctantly, and then be told, oh, we solved the whole problem, and now Rex the robot can come to Earth with us now. That's pretty much the end of the story. I hope I'm not spoiling this 50-year-old book for anyone. Yeah, and I'm, I'm not going to spoil the ending either, but I'll, I'll just say that it was a very very stereotypical trope at the end where the robot does something and everybody's like, oh, he's not a crazy robot. He's a good robot. If they would have pulled that in an adult science fiction book, I, I think that would have been pretty awful. But because it was a children's book, I suppose that trope was probably okay. But I'm not going to spoil the exact nature of that trope, but it, it definitely was very, very stereotypical. It is pretty basic, but then that's what it, things have to be for children's book. They have to be drawn with a, a wide brush. They're drawn with crayons, not with ink pens. Yeah. And this is a good example of that. It's, it's a competently professional, well-executed story for children that is engaging there's a little bit of danger here and there and it it does move along at a brisk pace so i you know it's competently executed for sure I, i'm sure that if i would have read it when i was 10 years old i would have really liked it as i did my first experience to lester del rey was through scholastic books program in elementary school what we had and i'm sure you had it too was i think it was about maybe once a month catalog. i believe so yeah then you'd take it home read through it, mark a few off. And if you had parents like I did, they, they put a much higher limit on the number of books that you could order, which was, which was nice. I, I did. Fortunately, both of my parents were uh, public school teachers at the time. And my dad was actually a reading specialist. I learned how to read before I started kindergarten and they were always encouraging me to read and I didn't need much encouragement. So I had a pretty high limit to when it came to scholastic books, I think it was five books a month from them, something like that. 
I think I ended up buying almost every science fiction book that they advertised in Scholastic. Some of those other titles were Tunnel Through Time, also by Lester Del Rey, Trapped in Space by Jack Williamson. I'm really hoping you recognize one or two of these. Revolt on Alpha C by Robert Silverberg, Lost Race of Mars by Robert Silverberg. Then there was the Danny Dunn series. There was the Mad Scientists Club. I know you were about eight years mm-hmm. off from me. A few years older. I, I My scholastic book experience started in the late 1960s and went uh, into the early 1970s. So some of these may have been published after I was done with scholastic books. But the thing is, I was, I, I was still reading science fiction stories at this time, but I was beginning to move away from science fiction stories into horror. And I did find a couple of, well, I found there's two titles in particular. One of them was Ghosts, Ghouls, and Other Horrors, which was a horror story anthology. And I know that there were a couple other horror or ghost anthologies that I picked up from Scholastic. I couldn't find some of the other ones. But the one that was really important was Shadow Over Innsmouth by H.P. Lovecraft. That was a collection of H.P. Lovecraft stories for Scholastic books. And to this day, Shadow Over Innsmouth is still my favorite H.P. Lovecraft story. That was an important moment for me when I discovered H.P. Lovecraft at about 12 years old. There was a brief period in my early teens where I was writing H.P. Lovecraft pastiches. So I wrote a whole bunch of H.P. Lovecraft stories, style stories, and I actually accidentally plagiarized Pickman's model. And it wasn't because I read it. It was because it was adapted by Night Gallery, the Rod Serling show he did after Twilight Zone. And I had watched it, forgotten that I'd watched it, memorized the plot, and I sat down and from scratch wrote the story again and then later read the story and I went, oh, damn, I just plagiarized H.P. Lovecraft. That was a very important moment for me, courtesy of Scholastic Books. While I was looking for the, some of these books that I might have read, I found a couple, I found a collection of girls' books. And oh, you mean like I, I, I may have run across some others, like fitting in with the girls kind of books. Yes, that, that was actually, let me read some of the titles of these. So this is what the girls, while you and I were, were you know, seizing up science fiction and horror, the girls were reading books like Ginny and the New Girl, uh, The Funny Guy, The Janitor's Girl, Snowbound in the Valley, A Horse of Her Own. Girls, back in my day, girls loved horses. They just loved horses to death. And here's my favorite one, though. This is my favorite one. I would almost want to get my hands on a copy of this. Baby Island. Um, It's got a picture of two, like, 10-year-old girls holding, like, six babies. So I can't even imagine what a hoot that book must be. That, like, they get shipwrecked on an island with a bunch of babies, and they have to be little mommies 
you know, at age 10 and take care of all these babies. That was a different world, my friend. (laughs) That was a very different world. We had to teach the boys to be brave soldiers that would go off to battle and the girls to be responsible mothers. Or the boys to be, you know, great scientists. Because there was a lot of, when it comes to nonfiction, maybe this is a good question for you. There was a lot of nonfiction that I bought through scholastic books. I read a lot of historical biographies. I remember there was a Harriet Tubman book that made a big impact on me. It was like my first book reading about slavery. And that's, and she had, she was a very exciting character in real life. So it was, it was an exciting, really an adventure book, but I read other historical books. I seem to remember something about a young kid who was like a, a powder monkey on a, on a battleship during the American revolution books like that. Uh, and then the other thing was I read a lot of puzzle books. I bought a lot of puzzle books, mazes and puzzles. That was something that, that I was, I was into too. I found the best way to find titles that I didn't remember was to do image searching on it and, and just look at the covers. Yes. That's what I did for nonfiction. One of the things I saw, I have not a lot of memory of this, but uh, Hurricanes and Twisters. You know what? I think I got that book myself because I was obsessed with with tornadoes at at the time. But I was, yeah, I was very much a science nerd at the time. So anything that had anything to do with dinosaurs or paleontology or uh, oceanography, I was into the Jacques Cousteau shows. So I'm sure any, any, nonfiction book with any of those subjects I would have, I would have grabbed out. I remember a book for children on cooking. I guess it was one of those things that it's like introducing what real life is. You know, you have, this is what tornadoes and twisters are. This is what it's like to cook. And I remember cooking out of it. the, The beginning of the latchkey kids. That was around the time I became a latchkey kid. Do they even have that concept anymore? Oh, I suppose not, because that leaves a kid alone at home with pedophiles at every window staring in. (laughs) Another thing I'll credit Scholastic Books for is that there were a couple books, Double Trouble and then Triple Trouble for Rupert. It was about a kid in sixth grade with his adventures, and it was the inspiration behind a book I wrote on dogs going to a daycare center and having their own little adventures. Can I do a pitch? Yes, of course. It's on Amazon and it's called The Daily Adventures of Henry the Dog. If you have Amazon Prime, you can actually read it for free. And I'm pitching it now because it honestly was inspired by those two scholastic books. You know, there was there was one other scholastic book that did have a almost it had a bigger impact on me than uh, the shadow over Innsmouth, and that was Wrinkle in Time by Madison Langle. I remember that as the first adult world book that I ever read. I mean, everything I'd read up to that point was children's literature. It was children's books, books like the Oz books. I read a whole bunch of Oz books when I was probably about eight or nine years old. But the thing that I remember about A Wrinkle in Time is it felt like a book, even though the main character was a young kid like me, 
It was a story that took place in the adult world. That was an important transitional book for me because after that, I began reading older kid books, what would be called young adult books now, and even some adult books. I remember I read Moby Dick when I was about 10 years old. So that, you know, it was, it was a doorway book for me and it's still a wonderful, I still think it's a wonderful book. I hope that kids today are still reading it because it's got a great message, which is if, you know, you're an outsider and you're kind of a loner and a weirdo, you could still do great things. And, and that's what really drew me into the story. That was a scholastic book. While searching for scholastic books, I ran across the solution to a mystery because we've talked about a wrinkle in time in searching for scholastic. I found I'm going to share my screen now. And does that look familiar? It it? does not. That's the book, The Wonderful Flight to the Mushroom Planet, that I thought was a wrinkle in time. (laughs) It, It could be. I mean, wrinkle in time was a little bit hallucinogenic. So that, you know, I could understand the confusion. And this plot has come up more than once where the scientist father is doing sciencey things and he gets lost or trapped or disconnected yes. and the kid has to rescue him. Yes, that's, that's a wrinkle in time. That is one of the basic plot points in that book. Not only the, the viewpoint character, Meg, but she brings along her younger brother, Charles, who is a basically a genius who may or may not, I don't remember, but has like psychic powers. Oh. And um, and that's one of the reasons why that book is so great, is that he's a brilliant genius level kid and has, has potentially psychic powers. And the evil entity finds him and senses that in him and tries to take him over. So Meg is not only trying to rescue her father, but she's also trying to rescue her brother from the clutches of the evil entity. It was scary. That was one reason why I love that book. There's parts of that book that are goddamn scary. That's why I hate, 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 hate the fucking Disney version of it. it came out a couple of years ago. I didn't even try that. I turned it off after 20 minutes. I think we've already had this discussion. That was a book that was half of a horror novel. And it's probably why I was attracted to it in the first place. But at any rate, thank you again, Scholastic Books. So I'm now certain that I did not read that book. As an adult, is it worth reading? Yeah, I think it is. Because like I said, it felt like an adult book to me when I read it way back when. It had a, a tone to it. And that's a, that's a really good point to, to, to circle back to The Runaway Robot. The Runaway Robot had that children's book tone to it, where it was almost dumbing down the story for the reader. And and I've seen this in other, quote unquote, children's books, where there's this tone of simplicity, where it's like, Charlie loved the color red. He loved to eat apples because they were red. Charlie wore red sweaters every Tuesday. You know, it's that sort of very simplistic prose that is clearly written, almost written down to children. There was none of that in A Wrinkle in Time. It was written like an adult book, and it had very serious themes in it, which I didn't fully appreciate at the time. 
I did when I went back and reread it many years later. So yeah, I would, I would recommend it as, as a good read. But that's an interesting thing to think about when we're talking about books for kids. I don't know if we're going to touch on this again, maybe when we talk about perhaps some of Highland's juvenile literature. It would be interesting to see whether he was guilty of the same sort of talking down to his readers or not. I do believe from what I've heard about the Highland books is that they were more technically oriented, that it would, they were, you know, as close as you can get to hard science fiction for kids. Yes, so definitely. That would be hard to have a paternalistic tone in a book that was hard science fiction. Maybe that would be worth doing another episode at some point to, to make a comparison. What wor works in writing science fiction for younger audiences? Do you talk down to them? Do you have to simplify things? Or do you just pr presume that they're smart enough and they're good enough readers? If you tell a good story, they'll go along with it. That's a really interesting point that I think would be worth talking about again. I would say that it depends on the writer. Some would simplify it. Others would take the other route and it would be an instructional book on what a spaceship is like, what it does, where the planets are, if you know what I mean. Yeah, that's, that has its place. I mean, yeah, yeah. or at least it, it did when, when in our childhood, you know, it's like, you know, we're going to take a ship and go throughout the solar system. And you learn about the solar system by following the adventures of Tom Swift or, you know, whoever it was that was traveling throughout the solar system. Uh, even though scientifically, a lot of their information would have been, <laughs> even for the day, might have been outdated. That's one thing, by the way, I did note. Again, for a story written in the mid-60s, it seems like the science was a little outdated in this book, too, because we actually had sent probes to Venus and Mars and the moon by that point. It's a mild criticism, but it did feel like a book that was 10 years out of date to some degree. Well, there's a series written by Hugh Walters, the UNESCO series, which started in the early 50s and definitely had to start overlooking things by the, by the 1980s. Stories where, where Venus is jungle planet, you know? Yeah. Those, how, how long did those sort of stories persist? The minute we sent our first probe to Venus, it was like, oh, shit, Venus is a fucking volcano planet. It's like 800 degrees and boiling lead on the surface. You're going to love this. I guarantee you're going to love this. There was a very early and I say scientific in quotes, idea that the sun would expel a planet every like 100 million years and that the planets that were furthest away were the oldest. And from that, we get that Mars is like Earth, but older. Venus is like Earth, but younger. Yes, I remember that, that I remember that theory. And I remember it vividly so it must have been part of a book that i read at some point newly forming venus and the ancient uh, there's so many stories about ancient mars i mean john carter the edgar rice burroughs books was ancient mars ray bradbury's martian chronicles was all about ancient mars almost every book i read a short story very recently that took place on Mars, and it was the ancient Mars dead civilization. 
that was a major trope that was in a lot of science fiction of our period. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So I guess we can credit Scholastic with igniting an interest in reading. But for you and me, it did inspire us to end up creating our own writing. Absolutely. Like I said, discovering the shadow over Innsmouth directly led to me reading more H.P. Lovecraft and, and associated writers like Robert Block and Clark Ashton Smith. And it, it very much pushed me into fantasy in, in, in the years after that. And I, as I said, I was writing Lovecraft pastiches for a while. My, my teenage years were mostly Robert E. Howard, Conan type, and, and Lovecraft pastiches. That was the main thing that I wrote when I was a teenager. I can't credit Scholastic Books with Conan, because I don't think Conan would have passed their decency standards. That I attribute to B. Dalton Bookstore. My parents used to drop me off at the mall at the bookstore and, and come back in an hour. And I, just like Scholastic Books, I would have uh, had like five books under my arms ready to go. And one of them was Conan the Adventure. Scholastic Books can't take credit for that, but they definitely had a huge, a huge impact on me as a writer, but also as a human being. Because in the years after that, like in the summer, one of the things I did in the summer is I would go to my local library every week and I would get an armful of books come home, read them all, and then come back and get a new armful of books every week, every summer. And I, that was me replicating the Scholastic book experience to some degree. And it was the same as Scholastic. It was an eclectic mix of, of fiction and nonfiction, science and history books. I think that's partly what Scholastic books did for me, is it developed a reading habit that was eclectic and entertaining. And I will always be grateful for that. It was a source of books when the only source of books was the library. Oh, yes. That is a point that I wanted to make. If you grew up in the days before the internet, you were limited to whatever books were on the Scholastic Book Catalog every month. You were limited to whatever books were in your small local library. You were limited to whatever movies were on TV or were coming around to your local theater. And if you lived in a small town, you were seeing the big blockbuster movies months after they came out. So you would have to wait months to see a, a movie like Jaws or The Exorcist. I mean, it would have taken months for you to, to wait to see those movies. Really, what you, what you had was a random sampling of culture. And it, and it was very, very random. So... That meant that there were a lot of movies, for instance, that I didn't really get to see until the days of VHS came along and I was able to go to a video store and rent a movie that I'd heard about all my life. And finally, there it was. I could, I could bring it home and watch it on video. Or maybe if you were lucky, it came on cable. But in those days, whatever you had a chance to be exposed to was what you got. And that was a random factor in development for me. Maybe if I would have had a different random selection that I was exposed to, maybe I would have been into detective stories rather than horror. Maybe I would have been into historical adventures rather than science fiction. But that's just the way it was in those days. You, you got what you got, and that was all you got. 
I was going to say something similar about my library. I lived half a block from the library. If we had had the internet and bigger libraries, maybe I would have read nothing but science fiction my whole life. But instead, I had a small town library, which had a children's book section, an adult book section, and between the two, literally the size of a deep closet. I don't even know what they called it. Middle readers. Yeah, it's what, what, it's like what would be called young adult novels today. Young adult. And back then it was middle readers or something like that. So after, what, six months, I, I had read every science fiction book in that closet area. And then I read all the mysteries, uh, read a few others. I mean, I, I liked the exposure I had to other things. Believe it or not, I read the first dozen books in the Boxcar Children series. I I love those books. Those are great. I read probably the first two, maybe. And again, I think that was through Scholastic Books. That was a very popular book series when I was a kid. A, a lot of people have read Boys and Girls, loved the Boxcar Kids stories. That was probably as close to a bestseller as you would have gotten on Scholastic Books. And the three investigators. Oh, um, that's a whole that's a whole nother show. <laughs> we can go on and on about how much you and I love the three investigators. About the only fiction I didn't read in that closet would be Nancy Drew and the Hardy Boys. Yeah. Yeah. I I tried a couple Hardy Boys and I think I started way at the beginning. So it was like the early Hardy Boys that were written in the nineteen twenties. And they were like, Gosh, Dick, this is smashing. And they were just the most cringy sort of stories for your modern 20th century kid to read. I totally did not get into the Hardy Boys. If I would have started in the middle of the series, which were a little more up to date, I might have gotten into them, but they could not compare to the three investigators. I mean, how, how can you top a bunch of kids living in a, hanging out in a junkyard and they've, they've got a Cadillac convertible with a driver at their disposal? to go investigate spooky crimes. I mean, how could you beat that? And they made things. They had like walkie-talkies. Yes. I'm going to testify. The greatest boys' adventure series ever. Three investigators. So would you like to give a teaser for what you will be talking about next episode? Yes. Next episode, we will be talking about Alamagusa by Eric Frank Russell. The first short story to win a Hugo Award. And I will be talking about whether or not Mr. Russell plagiarized Alamagusa. So I think we've reached the end of the episode. I would like to thank everyone for listening. Be sure to check in next week for another episode of Unknown Orbits. I'm Steve Reitze. I'm Patrick Baird. Thank you and goodbye. That's all for today. Pat and I thank you for listening and invite you to come back for the next episode of Unknown Orbits. Two guys from Milwaukee.